I've asked Ken, if he would, to continue for us, and he's going to read the scripture for us that will be the focal point for today, and you got it in your program. And I just wanted to make sure that you had the scripture today so that you could follow along. It's in the New International Version. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it on your own. We're going to be reading Romans 6 this morning, and we'll work just at a high level. We could spend weeks on this, but at a high level, we're going to work our way through Romans 6 this morning. But I've asked by way of introduction if Ken would read the first seven verses for us. They're not going to be on your screen for you, so you're going to need your program. Now that we've gotten settled in, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. So this is Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that Jesus as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of, of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Thank you, Ken. You may be seated. Okay, so we have, for the last few weeks been having a conversation about holiness, and we're going to end that conversation today. And the first week, we made a variety of observations based on a section of 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter 6, first of chapter 7, and several of our observations revolved around this one verse. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, since we have these promises, which he has just alluded to, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. We said four things that Sunday. First, we said holiness is being like God. So on, on the one hand, if we were to go negative, we would say that's not practicing those habits that destroy ourselves and our relationships and our connection to God. That's not sinning. Positively, we'd, we would say that's exhibiting qualities of godliness. That's looking like and living like and acting like God. We've talked about that for years at Gateway as one of the most important, one of the most central habits that we intend to massage into one another's lives. We've listed seven habits that we believe are critical to our connection to God and our healthy relating to others. And one of those habits is to uplift God's character. And uplifting God's character is all about displaying God through and in and on our lives, like a movie screen, holiness. The second thing we said is our holiness is motivated by what God offers us. The third thing we said is our holiness is also motivated by our reverence for God. And then we made an interesting observation. We backed up from the text and we said, you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that holiness is motivated by guilt. And we recognized, in fact, that guilt doesn't work, not for long. The final thing we said is holiness is something we grow in through discipline and effort. 
We acknowledge that holiness is the work of God in our lives. It's what God is doing in us. It's the primary thing God is doing in us. It seems like this old, dusty old topic, but it is what God is doing in our lives. But God will not work without us. St. Augustine, many centuries ago, said, without God, I can't. Without me, God won't. I was reading this week a really cool image, gardening image. You've heard this before. You go out and you plant tomatoes in a little bed that you've created in your side yard. Those seeds or those little seedlings turn into and produce tomatoes that you can, for some weird reason, those of you who like tomatoes, you can eat on a salad. That has very little to do with you. The life of that tomato is, of course, in the seed. But there are things that you can do. You can pull grass, and you can pull weeds around it, and you can occasionally water, and you can fertilize to nourish, and often the tomato will not grow without your effort, but ultimately you're not responsible for that tomato. You don't control the sun, and you don't control anything that's in the seed in the same way Our holiness is the work of God in our lives, but it it has to be weeded, and it has to be watered, and it has to be fertilized. The second week, we, we talked about why be holy. Why should we do this? We acknowledged honestly at the beginning of our conversation, when we hear the word holy or holiness, we think hard, we think boring, we think old school, we might even think applies to somebody else way, way different than me, but we recognize that this is written to all of us. And we acknowledge a variety of reasons why we should be holy. Number one, God commands it. Number two, we talked about how it's a central part of why Jesus came. It was his purpose. Number three, it's the evidence, and, and the only real evidence, that we have a connection with Christ. If you're wondering if someone you know really has a connection with Christ, you look for marks of holiness in their life. That's how we tell. Fourth, we said, it wins the world around us. We're going to get back to that one at the very end. We're going to conclude with that and circle back our whole series of conversations about holiness. We're going to land on that. It wins the world around us. Next, we said it provides us with a sense of God's presence in our lives, and we acknowledge that Sometimes when we're missing God, when we feel disconnected with God, it may be because we're not pursuing holiness. And then we said it is the ultimate source of our true and utter relief. We don't think of holiness as a relief, but it is. Think about this. Think about the I wish list that you have running in your head, that I have running in mine. The I wish list that dampens our spirit, our energy, The I wish list through which, by which we denigrate ourselves, perhaps even others around us. I wish I was taller. I wish I was more muscular. I wish I was thinner. I wish I had bigger breasts. I wish I had smaller breasts. I wish I had straight teeth. I wish my smile was white. I wish I had a different nose. I wish I had hair. I wish I was younger. I wish I was more assertive. I wish I was more confident. I wish I was funnier. I wish I was the kind of person that could go into a party and feel at home. I wish I, I wish I, imagine being free from that list of wishes. Imagine being comfortable in your skin. That's holiness. Let's look at holiness from another lens. 
for those of us who are tempted to think of it as boring and dry and dusty. The Apostle Paul at one point is writing to a group of his friends and he says, here is the fruit of the Spirit. Here's what happens in your life. Here's what gets displayed on your life when God's Spirit inhabits you and is at work in you. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Anybody want less of that stuff? That's what holiness looks like. God on display in our lives. We are more at peace. We are more loving. Finally, we said we were designed for holiness. It's what God made us to be. So when we work at odds with holiness, we work against the grain of our own design. Okay, so today, let's end our series of conversations. And let's get really, really practical. We're going to ask and at least begin to answer. We could spend weeks and weeks on this, but we're going to at least begin to answer the question, how do we do this? How do we be more holy? Now, this is a question for all of us. For those of you who are taking your first steps into this spiritual journey and you're just getting used to the fact that it's, this is not too weird to come to church and you're somewhat beginning to enjoy these conversations, you are bound to be asking the question, okay, how? How do we do this? For those of you who have been at this for a very, very long time, you and I are still asking that question. How do we do this? How do we do our part? Without God, I can't. But without me, God won't. And what is the me? So for that, we're going to look at Romans 6 this morning. And in this section, Paul intends, especially in the middle of this passage, Paul intends to be eminently practical about how you can begin to do your part, how you can apply holiness to your life how you can exhibit more of the fruit of the Spirit, how you can increasingly say no to the sin patterns in your life, how you can more and more look like God to others and relate to others like God and therefore have more healthy relationships, how you can increasingly turn off the tapes of the I wish list in your own mind and heart. How? And we're going to find four things here. Now, admittedly, a couple of these points, Paul is making overarching theological observations that he intends to be groundwork, but we're going to turn those into application points for ourselves, and that's true for the first one. So first of all, if we're going to be holy, we have to identify with Christ. We have to put our identity in him. We have to find our identity in Christ. We have to identify ourselves with Jesus. I'm with him. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 again. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? He's building on an argument he's already made. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, of course not. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And he's using that kind of language in the same way we might today. You know, if we reject our family, at some point we might say, I've died to that family. They're dead to me. That's what Paul means. So this old pattern, this old habitual way of doing things, it's as if we are dead to that. Or don't you know, he says, and he uses that phrase repeatedly in this section, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, and that's our identification marker. That's when we go public. That's how we let our freak flag fly, by being baptized. 
we say to others, hey, I'm in, and then we get together, and we do this here at Gateway. If you've never seen it, it's really cool. We have people actually tell their story, how they got to this point, and then we take them outside, and in just a few weeks, we're going to have one of these in our new building. Yes, in our new built-in baptistry. I thought for a long time it was going to be a whirlpool, but there are no jets in it. We walk into it, and someone is going to walk into the water with me, and I'm going to say these words, buried with Christ in baptism. And that is that person saying, I'm letting my freak flag fly. I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. I identify with him. Where was I? Verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are so identified with him, it's as if we died when he died. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We are completely identified with him in death and in his resurrection. This is the beginning of the process of holiness for us. Look, don't miss this. We can be extraordinarily good people without identifying with Jesus. But if we want to exhibit holiness, if we want our lives to increasingly reflect the character of God, that begins with identifying with Jesus. That's where it starts. Identifying with Christ is the beginning of the process of holiness for us. Here's what Paul means. Here's what he's saying. We can't go on sinning, meaning we cannot keep the kind of practices that we used to be involved with. We can't continue to be the kind of people that we used to be because we've identified with him. Some of you heard me say before, one of the best testimonies I ever heard, years ago I heard this young man stood up in our church and gave a testimony, paused for a few seconds, I got nervous, I didn't have any idea what he was going to say, and he said, listen, basically here's my testimony. The way I used to think about my career, wrong. The way I used to think about women, wrong. The way I used to think about myself, wrong. I have a whole new way of thinking now, and God did that in me. We were baptized into Christ Jesus. In fact, we are so identified with him that it is as if we literally died when he died. In a sense, we did. The old way of thinking and acting and processing the world, that died with Christ when we identified with him. Think about the things that people, through which they identify themselves. Some of these are core issues, really central issues, things like, family of origin, political views, sexual orientation, country of origin. These are the things that people argue for and even die for. Paul is acknowledging that we have traded in all of those for a singular identification. We are those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. So George Gahungu and I over the last months have had many provocative conversations about culture. And it's been revelatory for me in being reminded, I am not essentially an American. You are not essentially an African American, an Indian American, a Southern American. I was talking to Ken and Bijou yesterday, and, you know, it's so obnoxious. These people that come, especially from Africa or, or Europe, they speak four or five languages. I told them I speak Southern and English. And... <laughs> And those are the only two that I speak. But that's not who they are. That's not who I am. That's not who we are. We are Jesusans. 
We have identified with him. That's who we are. Okay, let's state the obvious. This identification begins with believing the story. That means that the process of holiness begins with a wholehearted acceptance of the Jesus story. In a culture like ours where being a Christian is still acceptable, you can go through the motions of baptism. You can so-called let your freak flag fly without truly identifying with Christ. But Paul isn't thinking about such conditions. Paul is writing to a group of people for whom identifying with Christ could have cost family, it could have cost job, it eventually could have cost them their lives. And yet, that is their identification. Our participation in the process of holiness doesn't begin with going to church. It doesn't begin with trying to be more patient. Our participation in the process of holiness begins with identifying with Christ, not admiring Him, identifying with Him, fully and wholeheartedly believing the story. That's where it starts. That's when He begins to work in us. So as I said, we can be really great people without identifying with Christ, but you cannot engage in the process of real holiness without step number one, identifying with Christ. Secondly, we have to live with the end in mind. I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We died to the old way of doing things and we are now and are looking forward ultimately to a great and glorious resurrection. Even if you think it's hokey, even if you think it's weird, you need to know fundamentally Jesus believed that there would be an end to time and space. And reality as we know it, something different would happen to it. And those of us who had identified with Christ would inhabit that new thing, that new world in a new way. They use elaborate illustrations to describe it, those first followers of Christ. It's going to be a time when there's no more suffering, no more pain. It will be eternal. That's what we're looking toward. But even if you're not dialed in right now, force yourselves to think about this. That eternity, that is the context of our lives. We so often, especially suburban Americans, you guys are so busy that we get trapped into thinking that the context of our lives is a mortgage and a car payment and getting the kids into middle school or getting them into the right college and advancing in the career. That's not the context for our lives. That's our to-do list. The context of our lives is eternity. So believing this truth not only gives meaning to our lives, but it aids our holiness. Let me explain what I mean. I want you to imagine that we're taking a ship trip, a journey, to the new world. I know, I couldn't think of the right words. It's, it's a thing, a ship trip. <laughs> it's not a cruise. It's, we're, we're, I'm going back several centuries. So we're on a ship. We're going to the new world, and we're, I don't even know the right language for ship, ship trips, but we're obviously, but we're a deckhand. Voyage, yes. 
Okay, we're on a voyage. Thank you, Christina. We're on a voyage, and we're going to the new world. We're on the ship, and it's going to take us months. And we're a deckhand, and we're swabbing the deck, and at the right turn, we're trimming the sails, and we're eating, and sometimes the rations get low, and our hair gets long and unkempt, and a couple of our friends have scurvy. You know, I'm just trying to give you the, the impression, but there's also, let's say, I'm just making it up, let's say there's a romance on the ship, and, and we meet Mary Sue, and by the time we get to the new world, we're in love, but here's the thing, the journey on the ship is only about getting to the new world. It's never about the ship. Even though we met Mary Sue, look, it's awesome, and we're enjoying Mary Sue occasionally. We, don't have to, we can't spend that much time with her because we're swabbing the deck and we smell bad, and so does she. But <laughs> we never forget. That's all okay. Look, it's all okay. It's okay that I smell bad. It's okay that I can't really know what Mary Sue looks like because the hair's all, you know, none of us have had a shower in weeks. It's all okay because soon... We're going to be in the new world. And there's a new life waiting for us. That's the context of our lives. And we have to live with the end in mind. I think living with the end in mind is particularly tough for suburban Americans. Many of you have heard me say this before, but when we first started Gateway, one of the things that we did is we knocked on doors, surveying folks. I was talking about this yesterday with a group of folks at Gateway to Gateway. Knock on doors, and I did a lot of this. We did thousands of homes knock on the door, and you guys were really friendly, and you'd come to the door, and I'd say, hi, and flash my best toothy grin. I'd say, hi, starting a new church in the area, and look, I'd like to ask you five or six questions. It'll only take five minutes or less. Do you have five minutes? And usually you said, yes, I do. You were very friendly. I said, hey, how long have you been in Northern Virginia? I'd write that down. What brought you to Northern Virginia? I'd write that down. Uh, what do you think we most need here in Northern Virginia? And some of you would say new roads. Yeah, okay. Grocery stores, believe it or not, this was years ago. There's now a dozen every three feet. But uh, grocery stores, uh, we need new shops and stuff to do. I don't want to drive all the way to rest. And okay, write all this down. Hey, if you were looking for a church, what kind of things would you look for? And you told me some of the things. You, some of you were clueless, but I wrote that down too. They're clueless. And then uh, last question, I would say, why do you think most people in our area don't go to church? And it was incredible. Many of you instantly started confessing. I didn't ask you to confess. Generally speaking, just general observation, and usually you would say, oh, I don't know, we're too busy. I know we should. Okay, you're too busy and you should, yeah. Here's what I learned in all of that. I learned several things. Some of you have heard me say this before. Diane and I, before we moved to Northern Virginia, I pastored a church in a very, very poor neighborhood in Boston. It was a pretty hardcore, rough, urban area. Wonderful little church, very, very different than Gateway, and in many ways, not as healthy as Gateway because we were a people who were a mess. We didn't have the most basic things about our lives together. It was amazing to us when we moved to northern Virginia and to the suburbs. We went from the poorest community in Massachusetts to the wealthiest community in America. So that's kind of moving to the other side of the tracks. The first time we drove around your neighborhoods, I'm not kidding. We didn't grow up in the city. We didn't grow up in that kind of neighborhood, but we'd lived there for years. So the first time we drove around your neighborhood, Diane and I were like, holy smokes, does one family live in that house? <laughs> Here's what we realized when we knocked on your door. You like your lives, you just want them a little better. And I've said before, that's not a deal Jesus is willing to make. He asks for all of you, not just the parts that you want improved and tweaked.
We've got to live with the end in mind. Third, we have to create distance between ourselves and known sin patterns. Now, this is eminently practical, so saddle up. We have to create distance between ourselves and known sin patterns. Let me start by reading verses 8 through 11. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He's setting the logical and theological foundation. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Awesome, cool stuff. And then he takes a surprising turn in the same way you count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. So Jesus died. He can't die again. Now you, in the same way, consider yourself. Think of yourself. When you think of yourself, don't think of the I wish list, but when you think of yourself, discipline your thinking to such a degree that you're now thinking that old way of looking at things dead. Dead. Consider yourself dead. And then he gets even more practical with two follow-up, two sub-points. So create distance between yourself and known sin patterns. And then he gives us the positive and negative of that. Listen. First of all, he says, refuse to follow the rhythms of sin. Refuse to follow the pattern of sin. So the negative is, if you're going to create distance between yourself and your sin pattern, you've got to refuse to follow your sin pattern. You've got to refuse it. I'm not telling you it's easy, but it's not complicated. This is what he says in verses 12 and first part of 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Now those of you who have overcome addictions, you know how to do this. Alcoholics know that they can't allow themselves to drink. So they don't hang out in bars. Their friends don't let them take even a social drink at a party. Those of you who have battled with porn addictions, you have put protections on your computers. Those of you who are addicted to shopping, you don't own credit cards anymore. And you ask a friend or a spouse to hold you accountable to your spending. This is exactly what Paul means. You cannot go near your sin pattern. Often we don't make progress in holiness simply because we don't decide to make progress in holiness. Without God, I can't. Without me, God won't. Often we continue to sin because we want to. Wait, what? Yes. Often it's as simple as us not taking the necessary steps to refuse to follow our sinful rhythms. Let's take an obvious example. Think of the parts of your body at the risk of being embarrassing. Think of the parts of your body that you use to satisfy the evil desires of lust. You use your imagination. You use solitude. And you use whatever physically will provide for sexual arousal. How could you alter that pattern? How could you use the parts of your body differently? That's the essential question for you. And it doesn't mean saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. 
Because that's not good enough. That hasn't worked so far. So think of what you need to do, literally, practically, to truly separate yourself from that pattern. To use the parts of yourself that are employed in this, in pursuing evil desires, use those parts differently. Do you need to put protections on your computer? Do you need to stop watching television? Is the problem at work? Do you need to tell your boss to move your desk or tell a friend at work to make sure to eat lunch with you every day so that you don't eat with someone else? The same process, the same pattern of thinking and acting is true for us in all sin patterns. Even the more core issues like anger and control. What are the parts of ourselves that we use to nurse and rehearse anger? Use those parts differently. Build protections. Refuse to follow that sin pattern. I want to say something potentially harsh. If this all sounds a bit ridiculous to you, or if this sounds like heavy-handed religious stuff, then it may be that you have not ever entered the battle for holiness. You do not yet know how fierce the battle is or how awesome the relief of victory is. So, refuse sin patterns in your lives. Secondly, the other side of this, the other part of this, this is creating the distance now between yourself and sin patterns. The other part of this is the positive part of this. You've got to practice the rhythms of righteousness. We talk about it a lot at Gateway. The first week when we had this conversation about holiness, I dove into elaborate detail about here's some things I recommend for you. Before you leave today, before this day's over, arrange the, some of you are here, you'll remember this. If you weren't here, that's okay. I said, arrange a week of quiet times with someone. Or try practicing a four-hour, even a two-hour prayer time. You can do it. We laughed about it. I made fun of myself. Or take a 30-minute walk every day this week and memorize the first four verses of Romans 6. Did you do any of that? Practice the rhythms of righteousness. It is really not easy, but it is really not complicated. In other words, do those things which encourage your connection with Christ. I'm going to read verse 13 again. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. Offer yourselves as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. Physical parts, your imagination, your thinking patterns, offer those to Him. Someone told me recently they are listening to the Bible on their commute to work. And it's been richly rewarding for them. Are there times when it's boring? I bet. But let's face it, the commute is pretty boring. And think of the alternatives. They're offering parts of themselves to practice rhythms of righteousness. Someone else told me they had a new exercise regimen that they've been engaged in the last several months. I was glad to hear it wasn't the last several days. That's what I usually do. I usually brag about my exercise regimen after like three days. You should see me. I'm so buff now. <laughs> they've been running and bringing a prayer list with them on a little card. So they bring it out and they pray through a prayer list as they're running. Maybe Christian music encourages you. Maybe watching inspirational movies encourages you. So do it. 
Practice rhythms of righteousness. Listen, holiness is God's work in your life. You cannot start listening to the Bible on your way to work and expect to be instantly not angry anymore and not stumble with lust. We don't control this process. That's buried in the seed, remember? But without practicing the rhythms of righteousness, you will certainly never grow in holiness. Without God, I can't. Without me, God won't. And with such practices, God will, over time, grow you more and more into his likeness. Okay, fourth, final. You have to know the Scriptures. You have to know the Scriptures. Especially the teaching of Jesus and his followers. I know that sometimes this is hard work, but you have to do it. If you were here, how much did you love? I got this group up here on Father's Day. They were awesome. Karina was brown-nosing her dad. It was terrific. They were talking about their dads. It was really sweet. How much did you love hearing Ali Salami say when, I don't know how much Dean paid her for this, but what does my dad love to do? And one of Ali Salami's responses was he loves to read the Bible. How much would you like your kids to say that about you? What kind of impact would that have on them? Verses 15 through 18, listen to how he says this. What then? Shall we sin because we aren't under law but under grace? Because we're free. We're free. We don't have to do this stuff. We do it because it leads to holiness, and holiness is utter relief. It's not a legal requirement. So we're not under law, so what does that mean? No, that's stupid thinking, Paul says. Don't you know that when you offered yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? And he's going to make the point here, you are not ever completely in control. That's not who you are. So stop the illusion. You're either under the control of evil desires or you're under the control of Jesus. It's where you place your identification. He continues. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads, by the way, to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. And what is that pattern of teaching? It's the gospel. It's the story of Jesus. And because you believed that, because that's claimed the allegiance of your heart, you're now free from slavery to sin. You've got to know the Scriptures. You've got to know the teaching. What Paul is saying here is that obedience to the Scriptures has led to freedom from sin's slavery. And I have said know the Scriptures here only because obedience begins with that knowledge. So let me tap off the rest of this passage because it's beautiful. We won't make a point from this. I just want you to hear the Word of God. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations, Paul says. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, he's driving the same point home. So now, offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness, so to speak. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. 
but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why are we not growing in holiness? Well, some of us are not growing in holiness because we have never really identified with Jesus. We have never stepped in. We have never said with our whole heart, I believe it. I'm in, and I want to let my freak flag fly. We may have been coming to church for years. We may have been coming to Gateway for months or years. We may be a really good person. We're the best neighbor in the neighborhood. But we've never begun the process of real holiness because we've never identified with him. It's a matter of feeling our hearts stirred in a new way and saying, I'm in. I'm in. Many of us rarely have the end in mind. We don't live with the active knowledge of where we're headed. We don't, on a weekly, but on a monthly basis, remind ourselves of the real context of our lives. We don't live with the end in mind. Many of us don't do the work of creating distance between ourselves and our sin patterns, and it's that simple. And of course, some of us do not know the Scriptures, and we do nothing to address that lack. This process is not easy. It is often a fierce battle, and it's constant. But it's not complicated, and the battle is well worth waging. All right, let me end where I tossed out earlier. I want to end our whole series of conversations about holiness by tracing back to one of those reasons that we gave for why we should pursue holiness. We said our holiness wins the world around us. That's one of the reasons why we list uplifting God's character a holiness as one of our out-disciplines at Gateway. It's one of the things that helps us reach out. Our holiness helps us win the world. I'm going to read you Peter's commentary on that from 1 Peter, and then I'm going to read you a little story. Uh, 1 Peter, Peter says this at the end of this really rich section about who the church is. He says this, Dear friends, Let me urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they they even accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Our holiness wins the world. I read an interesting article some time ago. Some of you may know the name Nicholas Kristof. He's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. He wrote a column in March 2015 entitled, A Little Respect for Dr. Foster. And Kristof makes it clear in this article that he's not exactly a straight-laced Christian. Yet he says this, I've been truly awed by those I've seen in so many remote places around the world combating illiteracy and warlords and famine and disease, humbly struggling to do the Lord's work as they see it. He focuses on this one guy named Dr. Stephen Foster. He describes him like this. 65, a white-haired missionary surgeon who's lived in Angola for 37 years, much of that in a period when the Angolan regime was Marxist and hostile to Christians. Dr. Foster says this, we were granted visas by the very people who would tell us publicly, your churches are going to disappear in 20 years, but privately they would say to us, you are the only ones we know willing to serve in the midst of a fire. End quote. 
Christoph writes with glowing admiration for Dr. Foster when talking of his sacrifice. He said this about Dr. Foster's family sacrifice. Our son contracted polio. A daughter survived cerebral malaria and the family nearly starved when the area was besieged during war. And Christoph adds, Dr. Foster insisted on sharing the family rations with hundreds of famished villagers. Christoph concludes, the next time you hear someone at a cocktail party mock Christians, I want you to think of Dr. Stephen Foster and those like him. These are folks who don't so much proclaim the gospel as they live it every day. They show it. They deserve better. Our holiness wins the world. So if you've got a, a neighbor that you'd like to see drawn into the orbit of God's love, a child, a spouse, another family member, a co-worker, it may be that God's Spirit would draw them through your holiness. Let's pray. Today, Lord, I especially mindful of those among us who have never really identified with Jesus. We've never gone all in. We've been around church or religion. That hasn't become our identification. And I pray that your spirit would be stirring today. That they would be sensing something different. That you would be moving in them. It's beyond our capacity to create that in someone else. But you can. You can plant the seed. That flowers into love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest. And Lord, I pray for strength for those of us who want to engage you more fully in having the end in mind or in creating distance between ourselves and our sin patterns. Encourage us, strengthen us when we grow discouraged. And Father, for those of us who need to dive more into knowing your word, I pray that you would create the right opportunity and the right motivation and give us the right tools for doing that. Sanctify us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. Inhabit us. Live in us, we pray. Make us holy. Lord, we so want to be a place that would welcome our community, our neighbors, into the love of Christ. We want them to be drawn into the orbit of God's great love. And we know a significant part of that is going to be by our holiness, by their observing our lives together and apart and saying, they are really different. I want that. So Lord, if you would, in the name of Jesus, pour out your spirit on this group of people and create that here. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right, let's end this entire holiness conversation by singing a hymn. Let's stand together. Together we sing, everyone sing. 
Yeah. 